Now let's talk about, I would say it's new news, but it's very old news. We're just learning more about it. And that's the climate impact of wild pigs. They now estimate that they actually do more harm than a million cars. And I'm just talking about the carbon they release by the way they hunt and survive here in the country. They are introduced, the wild boars and wild pigs they're talking about were really European originally. Some are called Russian, some get enormous. There's one in Conroe, Texas that was called Hogzilla and weighed over 1,800 pounds. That's bigger than most cows. But by uprooting carbon trapped in the soil, feral pigs are releasing about 5 million metric tons of carbon dioxide annually. Just just where they've run wild, where they've been accidentally released, folks. There's an international team led by researchers actually from the University of Queensland that did the study, along with the University of Canterbury. And they've used uh, predictive population models coupled with advanced mapping techniques to pinpoint the climate damage that wild pigs are causing on at least the five major continents. Scientists from the University of Queensland say the ever-expanding population of feral pigs are a significant threat to our climate. Wild pigs are just like tractors, folks. They kind of plow through the fields. They turn over the soil to find food. And, of course, that releases carbon just like if we were turning it over with a tractor. Most people don't realize that since soil contains nearly three times as much carbon as is in the atmosphere, even a small fraction of carbon emitted from soil has the potential to accelerate overall climate change. I'm going to give you a picture which is kind of outrageous, if you ask me, is that the study shows on wild pig numbers and locations, folks, that they're upbringing an area from 36,000 to over 124,000 square kilometers. And that's in environments where they're not native. That's not counting the, the thousands of square miles they live where they originally came from. We've gotten so good with satellite images and things now that using existing models on wild pig numbers and locations, the team estimated at least 10,000 maps of potential global wild pig density, many of which the populations were way bigger than we ever realized. They then modeled the amount of soil area distributed from a long-term study of the wild pig damage across a range of different climatic conditions, vegetable types, and elevations spanning from low, low grasslands, almost swampland, up into subalpine woodlands. And incidentally, these wild feral animals are able to live in all those various ecosystems. The researchers then simulated the global carbon emissions from wild pig soil damages based on previous research done here in the United States, Europe, and even in China. University of Canterbury PhD candidate Nicholas Patton said the research would have ramifications for curbing the effects of climate change into the future. Invasive species are a human-caused problem, so we need to acknowledge and take responsibility for their environmental and ecological implications. 
If invasive pigs are allowed to expand into areas with abundant soil carbon, there may be even greater risk of greenhouse gas emissions, of course, into the future. And because these wild feral pigs are so prolific, they cause widespread damage, and that's both costly and challenging to manage whichever continent they're on. In looking at this study, it's clear that more work needs done. There's no doubt about that. But in the interim, we should continue to protect and monitor the ecosystems and their soil, which are susceptible to invasive species, at least if no other reason, because of the loss of carbon. Now, let me just put in here, I did a study a week or two ago. I think I've actually already published it for one of my radio shows. They have found, and experimenting with, an oral birth control They've had several, they've tried a number of ways. They've tried to poison the pigs, believe it or not, with sodium nitrate, which is what we make bacon out of. But unfortunately, when they gave them enough sodium nitrate to wipe out the feral pigs, everything that ate the pigs also got sick or got sick and died, from vultures to raccoons to uh, anything that'll eat a carcass. So we had to quit that. That was actually from a guy that was like, I think he was the agricultural director or something for the state of Texas gave up on that. But now they have discovered, it seems to be working, it's going to take a while, a birth control substance that they can put out. It's, it's very, the pigs are very much attracted to it, and they just don't have babies. That's a neat way, and oh, incidentally, and when, those, when they don't have the babies, of course, the pigs themselves do survive, and when they do pass away, get shot or whatever, the hormone, or whatever it is they're using, I think it's a hormone, is harmless to the the next predator or the next carnivore that comes along to eat that pig, including us. So it's if that system works, it, it may very well be the safest way. We have got to learn in our time to quit using dangerous herbicides, dangerous pesticides, dangerous poisons, and and be species specific. If we have one species we need to work on, we can biologically engineer now a particular chemical or a particular pesticide, if you want to call it that, that just really targets that animal. We've already got a bunch of these, but the big chemical companies would much rather sell you tons and tons of the glyphosates of the world to kill everything. We don't need to do that, folks. There's, there's, there's a better way, and we've got the knowledge to do it. And as people have listened to this show now for 20 years, some of them, we go by science. We go by what the real story is. We don't go by what somebody says. We need, like these studies that are independently done, just to find out what the real story is. And when you do that, then you... You can combat it, but you first need to know the entire picture. And a lot of these, even the chemical companies, they, they, they want to sell us chemistries. They don't want to make our world better. They want to make their pocketbooks a little fatter. As most of you may realize if you've listened to me even every once in a while, I'm really hot on plastics. They're, they're way, way overused. They're very dangerous to the environment, and they don't appear to be. They're so benign when you first take a look at them. But now we've got a new approach. It's called bioplastics. Biodegradable plastics made from biological substances rather than, what, petroleum. 
that can be created in a more economical and environmental friendly way from the byproducts of, in this particular study, it was nothing more than corn stubble. In other words, the leftover parts of the corn that we didn't use when we took the corn. They've also found out that they can do similar products from grasses and even mesquite, folks, for those of you who hang around Texas in the West. And this is according to a new study from Texas A&M AgriLife Research. The new approach involves something they call a plug-in. It's a preconditioning process, a simple adjustment for biofuel refineries. Joshua Yawn, he's a PhD, incidentally, from AgriLife Research which is part of A&M, and he's professor and chair of synthetic biology and renewable products at the college there. These, what they call plug-in technologies, allow for optimization of sustainable, cost-effective lignin, you'll get into that in a minute, the key component of bioplastics used in food packaging and lots and thousands of other everyday items. It sounds like a lot, but it's not. They've spent about eh, two and a half million bucks on the project so far. And that's funded a lot of it by the Department of Energy. And you can find this information, folks. I always try to show at least as much as I can where I get my information so it's traceable. I found this published in a monthly magazine. It's actually a monthly periodical called Nature Communications. It's an adaptable process. Efficient extraction, the use of the lignin is a major challenge for biofuel refineries, which for years actually were just tossing them. Quote, our process takes five conventional pretreatment technologies and modifies them to produce biofuel and plastics together at a much lower cost and far easier on our environment. For those of you who always think about dollars and cents, which you do at some point, the bioeconomy, as we know it right now, has about 285,000 jobs and produces and generates over $48 billion in annual revenue. So this is good for the environment and certainly good for our economy. The role of agricultural byproducts is a, a lot bigger than we, the, me at least, the average citizen realizes. AgriLife Research and the College of Agricultural and Life Sciences share a commitment to seek solutions through science to solve really the environmental problems, which by this way, though, also makes us usable products. Their research has already found that sustainable products, I like this, such as mesquite, who'd have ever thunk, <laughs> and high tonnage sorghum, which we grow quite well in many parts of our nation here, can be used as feedstock for biofuel production without using petroleum products. Agricultural byproducts such as corn stubble and other grasses are also alternative feedstock sources for these bioplants. These create potential new revenue streams for farmers, ranchers, as well as the transportation sector that transports harvest feedstock and byproduct crops to the refinery operations. Quote again, we have shown that bioplastics from biorefineries can be more economically beneficial, which opens new avenues to use of agricultural waste to produce biodegradable plastics. The discovery will mitigate global climate changes via replacing petroleum-based fossil fuels and non-degradable plastics with renewable and biodegradable materials. Think about that, folks. 
Um, I, one of my big pet peeves is the amount of plastics in our waterways and our oceans. If these same plastics should get into our waterways, our oceans, they do truly break down. They don't just become plastic nanoparticles that sift up through the entire ecosystem, but rather degrade to become, in essence, part of the water or part of the soil and go back for another use. In other words, they completely recycle, which is what we're going to have to learn to do with basically everything we use as we approach 8 billion of us on Earth pretty doggone quickly. Thanks for listening to Organic Matters.